Hello and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkov. Today, my guest is Michelle Leroux Bustamante. She's co-founder and CIO at Solliance. She's a cloud and security architect. She's also a Microsoft regional director and an Azure MVP. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Stefan. So our topic today is the one everyone, absolutely everyone talks about, microservices. So um, I'm really happy to talk about that. I'd like for you to maybe give us a brief definition of what microservices and a microservices architecture actually are. Yes, because of course there's only one definition, yes, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that amusing a little bit, but you know, without getting into you know buzzwords and such, I would say you know we we progressed you know in the 2000s with you know the concept of SOA. The concept of you know decoupling parts of the system and you know getting better scale and distribution and statelessness, and microservices continues from there really to give us an approach to solution design and architecture. And you know it it sort of adds new principles that promise to solve maybe some of the more modern architectural problems we face today, um, like DevOps and you know visibility into system movement and self-healing and there's a long list of things we could talk about there and 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 sort of promises to solve some of the issues SOA did not and I suppose that will come out in our discussion as well so you know it's an approach to architecture there are some principles you can follow um, that help guide you in your path but the truth is any good consultant knows it depends and so when we do a lot of our practical work you know we're doing a lot of finessing of choices because that's what makes it customized to the situation mm -hmm. so you mentioned that it's a that it sort of has evolved from from things we've had in the past um, what what makes it different what are some of the difference that you can think of uh, as opposed to soa style services or maybe even modules or components or objects or what have you well so i, I think that you know if you think about the the goal of decoupling and reuse um, there's constantly this battle between how much should I decouple, right, in order to achieve a goal and reduce, you know, friction when we update things, for example, not having too many copies of code, for example. Um, there's always been that friction and, and that goal and, the and, and that in alignment with distribution, right, and scale. And sometimes those are conflicting things because the smaller services get, for example, with microservices, you know, the more we have to think about sharing and the badness of sharing code in terms of a binary component. So with SOA, the way we broke things up, we really solved the problem at the enterprise architect level, which is, you know, I have this whole system, a CRM, an ERP, you know, and other types of applications that own their own data. And when you want to talk to, you know, that data, you have to go through the services layer. There's no other way in. And the purest view of SOA was that services own their data. There's no other way in, simply put, right? Um, the problem with that is when you got into building your own solutions and you had many services that you had to build across customers' orders, the typical discussion, right? Or if you think security, it'll be permissions and users and um, you know login history and user management stuff. So there's relations between those tables if you think about it at the data layer. And now it becomes difficult to think, well, is that just one service and I can only go through the service boundary? Or do I have many services, which means I need to aggregate the data between those services, which is not going to perform well. 
So we start facing this problem of what I used to call big SOA, little SOA. Um, I might have even coined that term. I don't know that it went viral, though. Mm. <laughs> and um, with little SOA, we're building our own solutions, and we're trying to find a way to build our solutions and still follow the premises of you know, you know, isolation of data behind a service boundary, mm -hmm. for example, um, but you can't unless you go down to the level of adding data services, right? So when we start doing that, we start getting into performance issues because we're aggregating across data services. And it just kind of became messy, I think. So what microservices sort of gets us thinking about are things like, why not allow services to own their data, but allow for an eventual consistency model across services and allow for the idea of you know, building projections of data that fit the other microservices in our ecosystem. So for example, I could create a user, if I'm thinking about like a security system, I create users, I manage users, I update profiles, and there's a system of record for that information. But when we think about logging in, I have an identity service somewhere else that needs to just do login. And all it cares about is username, password, email confirmation, and things like that. So why not have the user management side project a sort of runtime system of record with eventual consistency over to the read-only sort of login view, for example? Um, now, there are imperfections with that when you start talking about security scenarios, which I won't get into right now, but let's just say it's an easy way to view isolation, right? I now can project another view of that data for another service, and now we have that purest view. You know, the runtime identity service owns that read path, and, you know, the user management service owns its read-write system of record. And then if we need to project, you know, say, I don't know, registrations or history of assignment of permissions and things like that, that can be another projection to another set of services. And so, you know... We didn't do that in SO, right? We didn't think about eventual consistency where we're still trying to do transactions across service boundaries, which never worked, um, or at least never was widely adopted for the obvious problems it, it, it brings. So let me try to get clearer about this. When you, when you say project, you're not, you're not suggesting that it's just a, a view to the live data. You're suggesting that it's actually a copy of the data, of parts of the data projected That's, or transferred from one system that, to the that other. That is correct. And and mm -hmm. the typical way to achieve that goal would be by working with a message-based system, which could also be considered, um, you know, a next step to that would be an event sourcing system. So there's a difference between those two approaches, right? With message-based, let's imagine that every API I call is done through a message queue, Right, something like Kafka or Kinesis or Event Hub that can do re um, can can allow for multiple consumers to you know review the messages in different ways and project different results. So we now have multiple topics. Topics can be aligned with microservices. Consumers decide which topics they care about and project results, but they all get the same you know message, which then the message becomes the thing that actually happened. So if you do CQRS style, you know, design, the message could be what, what we would look at as a command, right? Um, create a user. But if you look in past tense and say, this already happened, the message is the true system of record actually at this point, then user was created is the message, right? And the idea is, you know, you project from those messages to read models 
that become the projected views for the services. Um, in some cases, we use the actual message, you know, queue as the system of record, but that requires additional work, which we might talk about uh, when we focus on event sourcing part of the discussion. So let's just say I have messages. It says everything that happened in the system, I can now project history tables. I can now project views for other services. And I also have the main service that that message was targeting in terms of a microservice, like a user management service or something. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I'm, 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 to me, it's interesting because I've heard so many different definitions of microservices. And this is one that has um, a lot of many of the definitions that I know, but also adds some things as parts of the definition that I would have considered just one variant. That's really fascinating. I'm not at all saying it's, it's you know, there's anything right or wrong, as probably you suggested in the beginning, right? There's so many definitions. And it's absolutely fascinating. So the so the key distinction to you is the, is the fact that we're actually uh, keeping data redundantly across multiple services. And each of those services is focusing on the parts that it's interested in and it's responsible for. And that you see that as opposed to something that is more uh, uh, cut apart along the boundaries of the of the entities with more of a of a centralized data model sitting behind that. Would that be a fair Correct. way to paraphrase it? Right. And and think about it this way. So if you look at the pure principles of microservices. They follow the same mantra SOA did around data ownership. A service is the only means of communicating with a, a set of data, and no other services communicate with the same data. That's just a golden rule. The question is, how do you realistically get there when we live in a world that has relations? And so there's sort of a progression here where when you start with your design, right, you, you go and you look at the whole solution, right? The whole system um, that we're trying to, say, reform into a microservices architecture. And we start to learn, okay, here are, you know, some off-the-shelf products. Here are some, you know, websites we've built, some services we built, some data stores. Then we've got some maybe even some mainframe data. We've got big data analytics over here. There's all these moving parts in a whole entire solution that, that you, may exist, you may have in existence. And you have to look at it from now the business domain to break it into microservices because there's really no value to microservices unless the business will benefit. And how does the business benefit from being able to you know, release new features in parallel without impact to other parts of the system? How do you get there? You have to decouple the way developers think about a set of, you know, data and mm, websites and services and turn it into how does the business use those services? So, you know, you've got the business needing features that might, there might be three different parts of the business that use the same, you know, set of data in a different way. Their UIs are different. The services they should go through are different, and the backend data that they need to interact with could be different. But there's still sort of a starting point for all that data. So user management is still, again, another story. I mean, just because it's easy to imagine security. If I create a bunch of users and I have a management interface, that's one way to look at that data. But then I've got these users that are self-service. I forgot my password. I need to change my email. I need to, you know... Um, uh, I guess maybe those are some key flows. I want to update my profile. 
uh, the list could go on, right? Um, so those flows don't go through the same UI and they really don't have the same feature evolution as the user management side. So although there may be some things in common, right, the parts that might need to evolve as new features are driven by a different group of people. And then you've got the identity service that does login and maybe federation to other providers and all these other things. So those features are also completely independent of the other two. There's things in common, of course, and there's certain data that's in common. And if you did it the old way, then you'd probably have some different web pages, maybe even different websites. And then you'd have a central service or two that all talked to the same data store that was relational across all the things, including permissions and users and user profiles and login history and stuff like that. But if you think in a microservices way, you could break that up for performance improvements because the runtime needs the services to scale a certain way to log in with millions of users and the management part and the user self-service part. And now when somebody needs new features, you're not stomping on each other, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, security is just one example. And I know people can come up with, well, what about this and that? And trust me, I've been there because we do a lot of security consulting. But the point is every single set of features has the same discussion around it that you could get to and start thinking from the business perspective. Mm-hmm. So if... If I understand you correctly, the, 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 the point, the key point here is that um, you want to have separate stakeholders lead to separate systems having to be touched or separate services to be touched, right? So that they don't step on each other's toes all the time. That's um, a great way to put which, it. Yeah, it's yeah. a business domain mm-hmm. that really has its own model associated mm-hmm. with it. That's where you get into the domain-driven design, mm-hmm. you know, mantra where you know, there's a whole, you know, process you can go through to try to tease out your your business domains. And they talk about things like aggregates, right? Where um, you can imagine each microservice owns an aggregate. And let's say one aggregate could be the user, another aggregate could be the permissions. There's clearly a relationship between the two, but the way aggregates in domain-driven design are supposed to relate is through an identifier. So my user has an ID, and that ID will have to somehow be used in the permissions aggregate as well. But those could be two you know, document databases, if you will, that are only talked to by their respective services. So when I go and look up a list of users, I'm probably not going to join on all the permissions, but if I needed to do that, guess what I would do? I would project that as another view that included all the things in one collection as opposed to, you know, messing with these two separate services that do nothing but manage one or the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think we'll have to do a separate episode on DDD on domain driven design. So I don't want to go into too much detail there. So it sort of, I'll sort of sort of forward reference um, an episode we haven't even recorded yet, but I'd like to address the other aspect um, or one other aspect that you mentioned um, again this time, which is if you project this additional view on the whole thing, um, and we've clarified that this is actually a separate copy of the data. Um, how much of a problem is the fact that this data is going to not be one hundred percent consistent all the time? And that is always something uh, that the business has to decide their tolerance for. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, eventual consistency, in my opinion, now having worked with, you know, so many people actually that have years more experience than I do doing message-based systems. You know, we have a whole team behind us that, you know, we've done many, many of these microservices design and implementations across many different platforms at this point. And it's really, really interesting to me that not one of those situations that have had any size to it in terms of enterprise level implementation, not one of them has been, you know, I guess, um, viable without looking towards eventual consistency and message-based, you know, design. Because message-based systems give you visibility into what's happened across all the things. It lets you have history tables without having to build custom history tables. Everyone's done it. Nobody really wants to do it because it gets messy. Oh, we forgot to build one for this table. Well, you always have your history if everything's a message. And, you know, asynchronous design is already part of how we live today in, in every, you know, development platform. So that's not really as difficult as it used to be considered. So I'm sending messages, they become the messages, the history of what's happened in the system, user was created, user was locked out after three retries, you know, user changed their password, user was deleted, so-and-so gave them admin permissions, so-and-so took away their admin permissions, you see where I'm going, everything Mm -hmm. being a message, I now can go back in time and say, oh, what happened to that user? Or how many users have been created in the last week or other analytics, right? So the messages are sort of now not a liability, but actually an asset. Now, at the end of the day, the eventual consistency part, you know, is, is, has to be part of this because now what we're saying is each microservice, um, you know, will access data associated to what it cares about. And that means that whoever is, you know, listening on the message topics for each microservice is responsible for projecting those, you know, read uh, stores. And they may not all project at the same time, and you'll have to have metrics in place for, hey, our queue is down and things aren't projecting, so we're way out of sync. I mean, that simply can't happen, right? You have to now start putting faith in the system working to do its job, and you have to have lots of, you know, checks and balances to make sure your system actually is working and that it's recovered quickly, Mind you, that's something we can talk about in a separate thread here, which is, you know, the DevOps story around microservices is paramount for anything to be actually viable. You can't do it without strong DevOps and disaster recovery and, you know, visibility into diagnostics and errors and alerts and so on. So that's just something I'm assuming is in place so that I can have faith that my projections are happening. And... Now the question becomes, what happens if this report is out of date by five seconds? I mean, it should be within the second, right? Millisecond even, if everything's running. So what's my level of tolerance and at what point are we breaking SLA? And and that is a, a decision the business has to make for every use case, which is why we have to look at microservices as things that fit in your head and look at them individually. For every single microservice, you have to think, what are my SLAs? What's my concern if this is delayed? Because then we can start looking at, well, maybe this one can't be eventually consistent. How do we work around that? Mm-hmm. So this this it leads me to a follow-up question, which is um, if the goal of microservices is to be really that small, as the name sort of implies, um, and if the individual services are so small that they're easily e- easy to understand, which is all fine, 
uh, don't we just move the complexity into the spaces between the services? Is it just, have we now made, and I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not only talking about the infrastructure, even though you could count that in as well. I'm just more talking about the, you know, the, the collaboration of the whole scenario of event emitting services. Is anyone able to understand the system that emerges from this collaboration of, of microservices and do they have to even? Right. So again, the, that's an excellent point and it's an excellent question. So I always come back to this. If there isn't a business value for implementing microservices in at this level in the first place, then you shouldn't be doing it. So most systems don't need microservices. Maybe they could follow some of the principles in terms of isolating and decoupling logic and, and services from dependency on one another. But to get to this sort of, you know, beautiful endpoint whereby every service fits in your head, none of them are dependent on one another, they're independently deployable and schedulable, they, you know, you have a versioning process in place that never causes problems. I mean, if I'm the size of, you know, Netflix or Amazon or, you know, other similar, you know, enterprises, you know, microservices carries a ton of value for them, even though they probably literally have thousands and thousands of services because they also have teams managing the breakdown of those things. They also have orchestration platforms helping with the self-healing and recovery. They also have versioning patterns in place um, and, and deep implementation efforts into diagnostics and dashboards and so on. So that's like the absolute far end of the spectrum, which is, It's very, very complex, but it's absolutely needed, right? And then there's the people that can just, you know, build a system out of several services, break it up with the principles in mind, deploy a couple Docker containers, run them manually, use, you know, some like Jenkins or um, just to, you know, do a simple DevOps process to, you know, replace and run the containers, but not really do any fancy discovery or you know, self-healing discovery, no orchestration platforms and so on. So there's both ends of the spectrum and then there's all this stuff in the middle. Um, so the first and number one question that I, I go to people with is where's the business value? So when we do a design, we spend time on the whole solution, the whole system first. We pull together some patterns that look like a fit for microservices, but in the process, we talk to the people that are the business side and ask them how they use the system today. And we discover things like, oh, And on probably three occasions I've, I've worked with customers where the developers are actually troubleshooting problems in the enterprise because nobody knows where the data is because this job didn't run or that data didn't land where it should or this, you know, UI is not up to date. And it's literally a developer has to go in, which is very expensive because, you know, those developers actually have other more important things they should be doing for the business. Um, so you know, those DevOps folks, those developer folks, you know, shouldn't be troubleshooting individual one-off problems, but that's a sign that lack of visibility is a problem here. So why don't we take the, the biggest problem you have and let's just turn that into, you know, a microservices architecture following the big picture where we might want to get to. And let's show the biggest business value first so that the business not only sees, you know, why this effort is being put in place, because the first time you do it, you will have to spend time and money to get there. You're going to spend, you know, 10 months and lots of money and lots of resources to get your perfected DevOps orchestration platform 
first services in place with all the messaging, if you do that, all the dashboard visibility and alerts. And then after that, adding more is much easier. So if that 10 months doesn't show something of high business value, nobody's going to continue and you will have wasted your time and and the business just doesn't back you from mm -hmm. there, right? So what are some ways that you would go about building that business case? What are some considerations as to the return on investment or ROI that you would that you would talk to management about? So you do have to weigh all of the potential value. And a lot of times the value is things like new features more rapidly, solving business problems like every time I need this, it takes like a month before we can get this one thing done, which maybe costs the business money. And if the business is trying to grow, that's extremely expensive long-term. So they're just in such a rut that they're never going to get out of it unless they change something. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one side of it. The other side, obviously, is is the the staff it takes to solve problems. Um, and you know, you can do full blown ROI, but usually, at least in my experience, a lot of the red tape around a full blown ROI is is just costing the company more money and 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 delaying the decision because most of this you can finesse in open discussions with the right people in the room, right? You've got, here are the problems, here are the costs. Generally speaking, people know in their head their various costs. You get all the right people in the room and the CTO for a decision. Um, and, and then you talk about the risks, right? And the risks are obviously, well, if your team's really busy right now, then you need new people to run the new platform before you can sort of start migrating people over to participate. You might need external consultants to, to get you up to speed because, If your team doesn't internally know all these platforms, then it would be kind of silly to say, yeah, let's just figure it out as we go if you have any form of deadline. So it'll save you money to probably, you know, work with other people. I, I always bring in people that know more than me about various things, whether it's Kafka or, you know, certain, you know, uh, orchestration platforms or messaging platforms. And, uh, you know, coordinate all that effort together so that we de-risk. And I think that's that's another thing that's a cost you have to weigh. Um, and, and I think the other downside is if you don't go the full way, the first release, you could run into lots of issues and see it as a failure, right? So you have to make sure you're prepared really early up front to say, look, I know this is going to cost and I know I have to take this all the way in our first 10, 10 months release, if you will. Um, so again, that cost has to mean something to the business people in the room. So if you want to start getting spreadsheets going to, to weigh all that out in an ROI, you can. I'm not saying ROI analysis isn't important in some cases, but I, I just repeat that, that in a lot of cases that I've been part of it, as long as the right people are in the room, they're, they're willing to To, to make those bets and make those decisions. And it usually becomes pretty obvious when you look at what the business problems really are. So let's suppose you've managed to convince uh, to convince management that the money has to be made available for the business to succeed and you can start this effort. What are some ways to to attack the the, the blank slate that you have now when you when you have to come up with your first with your first microservices architecture in actual reality? So so this is where in fact management has probably already made a small commitment by saying let's do a design, right? Mm -hmm. Because If you don't start with, I guess, a, a sort of, you know, 
whiteboarding session for three to five days, depending the size of the system solution company, um, and how much you want to attack, I would say that's enough to get started. Um, you, you need to sort of take a look at all the pieces that are in the ecosystem of your solution, your system. So again, I, I would repeat, you, you probably start with a list of here are our data stores. Maybe there's various different kinds. There's, you know, no SQL, there's SQL, there's mainframe, you know, there could be legacy systems integrated there. There could be off the shelf products that have their own data. Um, you have integration with those products. You have custom UIs you've built, legacy ones, new ones, you know, a bunch of evolution, a bunch of technical debt. And each of those may be representing any number of, you know, high level business functions, right? So from a very, very high level, you have ERPs and CRMs and, and websites that drive how your operation works um, or, or other UIs, mobile devices, et cetera. And you may come up with, you know, 20 to 30 major moving parts, let's say, to start with. And when we look at that, what we've started with is a very high-level microservices design, meaning, okay, I can compartmentalize this into, say, 30 pieces, like 30 groups of people, business domain, high-level. It's not going to be correct yet because there's going to be a granular layer below that that's still important. But I might come up with high-level, almost SOA-style breakdown. And then I would say, what's the area that's the sort of biggest pain point right now? What are the problems you're trying to solve today? And maybe that leads us to two or three of those areas where we open up, you know, the the kimono, if you will, and, and sort of look inside and see what else, you know, how can we tease this into a more granular set of services, UIs, workflows, uh, business domains and use cases, and you have to start small, but it's nice to see the big picture because then you can sort of take every design decision you make when you when you look at a few services and more granularity and map that or marry that to, could that pattern fit over there? For example, if I said, yes, we're going to do a messaging architecture, it makes sense here. You have a problem with visibility. You need history and diagnostics and um, you need, you know, history tables for audit and compliance. Um, you need better visibility into security breaches or the list goes on. So let's try this out, but let's do it here in this particular area. Um, but we will always go back to the big picture and say, could that still fit over there? Are we still going in a direction that fits the whole solution eventually one day? Right. Um, so you start with this high, high level, then you open up, you know, two or three areas and start defining real microservices architecture and trying to get down to the business domain. So I do that with, you know, typical pattern of use cases, which we've been doing for, you know, years and years and years, right? Where you just sort of think through two or three use cases for each UI and, okay, what do users do? They start here, they go here, it hits this service, it hits that service. And while you're talking to people, they'll say, oh yeah, but there's this other special case, oh yeah, there's this other thing that happens too. And so when you bring the business you know, owners in with the developers, the interesting thing that comes out of that is even you know, the business owners contribute things that developers forgot happens, right? Or they don't know this pain point. Oh, I didn't know you did that every time. Why do you do that? Oh, because this doesn't work. Today I have to do this. And that's why they say, you know, when you go to go through the process of, designing the microservice, breaking it into domains, it's so important the business owners are there because 
you don't talk to them often enough, right? Developers will say, oh yeah, I could help architect this. I already know how the whole system works. I wrote it all. You know, I, I can I can design the microservices. We don't need to bother them. But you do need to bother them because they're going to tell you stuff that you haven't talked to them about lately. You see? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the business problems pop up. And that's where we get to a real conversation. So I would say you do a design, a high level, you break up the pieces that feel like pain points. And as you're going through that, you're listening to what people are saying and you're saying, okay, Let's let's now take a step back. If we solve this problem with microservices, here's why it'll benefit you, right? You're now going to have logs. You're going to have your history. You, you don't have an audit right now. You're not com- meeting your compliance requirements. That's a problem for you in the future. You're, you're trying to solve it. Let's solve it the right way. Um, you know, these people never know where we are in the state of the workflow. If we have messages, we can do a process manager and track the state of the workflow and surface that in a UI. And now you won't have to call the developer to find out because you'll know this job didn't run or the job ran, but it failed or et cetera. Um, and so I would say at that point, you're starting to have real conversations with the business about, look, we've come up with a design. We've come up with some of the real business issues that you seem to need to solve. And so here's where I would take you. Um, so I think that's answered the first part of your question. I mean, you know, there's follow on that, that must proceed from there, but I, I think what we're trying to get to is, you know, do we understand the personality of your solution, your system, and do we understand what type of fit microservices is for you in terms of, you know, should we bother with the messaging architecture? Um, do you have the type of team and the size of solution that warrants an orchestration platform and all the things, or should we maybe keep it simple for now and just start with better isolation of your websites and services, you know, Mm because there's maybe a baby step in the middle, right? Or maybe we do hub and spoke. We do a services tier. This is another common pattern, a services tier in the middle, which becomes the, you know, sort of scalability central, you know, owner of business functionality that a monolith set of UIs can consume and a monolith backend can be stored to. Um, but the services in the middle, even though they will have eventually bottlenecks at the data layer, if it doesn't scale well, um, at least give you sort of that, that micro view of functionality that you can start adding features to. So mm-hmm. that's another pattern that could be sort of a step in the middle, for example. So, so let's talk about it a bit a bit about this technical uh, aspect. How much of a platform do you actually need? One of the things that bothered people about um, about SOA was the the heavyweight infrastructure requirements in terms of ESBs and and BPM platforms. Do you need any of that stuff or something comparable if you're building microservices? Not necessarily. Well, so again, we go back to the I could just build microservices and call them microservices and deploy them as websites on VMs, um, for example, um, which won't be, you know, using the technologies that we're talking about that back microservices like orchestration platforms, but could still get you toward the principles that you need to follow in maybe even some of the data isolation. Um, When we look at many small services that fit in your head, we start to have to think about all these other principles like self-healing and versioning and how do I deploy new instances without affecting others? How do I, you know, roll in an update um, that 
doesn't depend on three other services also being updated. How do we design for that? Um, messages could be a completely separate thing. So no, you don't have to do messaging. No, I don't need a ESB. Um, in fact, I would say ESB is an anti-pattern only because we want to have, um, I think as Martin Fowler coined it, you know, uh, smart endpoints and dumb pipes. So the pipes, if you're using messaging, should just be that, messaging. Mm -hmm. Let's not put a bunch of business logic in the center that, you know, causes coupling, really, between the services. Um, if you want to have some sort of coordination across services and you have messages calling those services, you can use a process manager, which is a separate thing. And then that way, there's no coupling between the services themselves. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you need an orchestration platform? That's a better question because once you start having many services to manage and deploy, you know, you want the self-healing, you want the scheduler capability where I can, you know, submit a job that might spin up, you know, 25 instances of that service in order to handle the load and then scale down. And so you're what you're trying to take advantage of here is server density. So, you know, a microservices platform promises to, if I use a platform, um, uh, use every available resource, memory, CPU, disk, that is available in my cluster. So if I have five nodes, 10 nodes, you know, 25 nodes, depending how big my solution is, you know, I could say, you know, let's run a job and it'll run as fast as it can based on how much is free across all those machines and then, and then release the resources when it's done. Mm-hmm. And if I'm running, you know, ongoing services that are constantly available and using up space, well, they can auto scale and fill density when there's a burst of requests. And at some point that auto scale fills the machines and you need an auto scale on the machine itself. So that's more the, you know, host, um, you know, your cloud provider would have to provide that auto scale story. And on premise, that's a bit more difficult because you have to have spare. Um and, um, you know, the orchestration platform also promises to give you service discovery, right? So I can have, you know, load automatic load balancing and stitching of these additional service instances without having to worry where are they. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come with that. And then, of course, there's the single cluster management tool across all of my nodes now becomes my one way to sort of view my system, right? So as long as my actual physical VMs or nodes are healthy. Now the next thing is, you know, I can do interesting things to inspect all the services that run across all 25 or 3,000 machines if there's that many. Um, obviously, when you get into the high, high numbers, right, you need to compartmentalize. There's probably, you know, more than one platform. There's probably, you know, groups of, of clusters that solve different problems that don't need to talk to each other. So, um, that's a really big enterprise solution as opposed to where most people start with 10 nodes, 20, mm -hmm. 10 agents. Mm -hmm. So is it, is it a good approach to, to start small and just wait for problems to hit you before you scale up? I wouldn't do that. <laughs> that's a, that's a loaded question, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't actually, want to wait yeah, for was, problems, I, but I, I think, you know, right. I think, you know, up front. Um, how you are going to manage your deployments. So, you know, you can automate things to a VM and just have, like, let's say I have a web, you know, service API that uses, you know, port 80. And I need to deploy that across, 
three machines, right? I have a, a cluster and it's going to be load balanced. So when I get a request, I don't know which of the machines it'll go to. One machine dies, it hits the other two, right? Your, your traditional sort of load balanced view. So there's nothing wrong with me, you know, creating microservice, even using Docker containers, deploying it to those VMs. But what will happen is I can only have one of those on each VM because I'm using the resource port 80. A way to work around that is, okay, now let's put an HA proxy or something on each VM. That will listen on port 80 and route. So now I'm going to create routing rules for API 123. So now I can have three APIs, each of them at whatever port, but I still have to fix the port, 3000, 3001, 3002, so that I know which one HA proxy is talking to, right? So it's not dynamic yet. So when we talk about service discovery and needing that, you know, it all depends. Well, can I get away with just having an HA proxy routing to three, five, 10, 15 services and then have Jenkins or um, some other automation tool push those you know, uh, images out and, and trigger a, an update to the deployment and, and it'll just function fine? Yes, because I've got a, a fixed view of my architecture and I'm gonna automate with that in mind. Mm -hmm. But when I want a fully dynamic sort of view of scheduling, deployment, management, um, you know, statistics on container usage, you know, versioning of containers so I can spin up another one V2 and, and sort of it starts getting complicated. Well, then I'm starting to think, well, if I have an orchestration platform, I might be able to manage that a lot better. Mm -hmm. Makes a little so, sense. Yeah. yeah. So it, as you said before, the standard consultant's answer is it all depends, which is unfortunately yeah. just true. What can you do is just, that's just the it's way It's a little bit of a finessing process, mm. right? So I, I wish I could say there's one recipe to, mm. you know, follow these principles and you'll have your architecture, but architecture is an art and, and you follow principles to guide you to the right path. And then there are reasons not to go you know, all the way, if you will, um, when there's, you know, timelines to meet or uh, resource issues to address, you know, people, availability, knowledge. So you got to be careful, right? If you go full-blown orchestration platform, now I need to know how to manage that platform. Mm -hmm. So my people either have to get up to speed or I have to bring in people that know to stay with me till I know. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is that once you get to know it, it's, it's, it, there's a certain risk it's obsolete already once you get a note because things are moving so fast at the moment. That is yeah, that's a real problem um, in the sense that, you know, when we go to make decisions today around choosing a platform, I mean, there's sort of the the main ones I run into, like you've got, you know, um, obviously, um, you know, Docker now has Docker Enterprise um, and that is the Docker data center platform. And that's a little bit newer, but of course it's backed by the company that, you know, provides Docker. So there's something nice about that in terms of a, a direction and a path. And, and it's, you know, it's built on Swarm and that's come a long way, obviously, over the past years. So, you know, we've got that platform. We've got Mesosphere with uh, Docker, uh, with DCOS or Data Center Operating System. And that's a really strong platform with Marathon at its underpinning, which has been around for a good 10 years as a scheduler. So it's really highly valued and trusted. And you got Kubernetes, which is newer, but obviously Google runs on Kubernetes and it's a very, very strong orchestration platform as well. And you've got Amazon with their own, you know, built-in, uh, you know, ECS or EC2 container service. And 
you've got Azure with Azure Container Service, which supports actually either Swarm, Kubernetes, or DCOS. And then you've got um, Service Fabric, which, you know, if you're doing .NET development is an interesting path to go because they actually have some features that the traditional orchestration platform don't have in that it's also a platform for, you know, um, for building services that that leverage um, uh, stateful services, for example. And we've got the actor uh, model that's implemented. So stateful actors, stateful queues, you know, reliable queues, as they call it. Um, and that's something that that gives you that out of the box. My service owns its data. And by the way, it also replicates it across the cluster. So I don't have to think about it. So as a getting started, you know, if I'm a smaller business, just getting started out of the box, I might not have to even build a data backend, potentially, right? Just depends on the size of the system. And that's really powerful. And then I can also do, of course, containerization of those things because it supports containers now. So, and it's a scheduler as well. So let's just assume I've, I've, I've managed um, to actually make up my mind and have picked one of those and decided to stay with it for the foreseeable future, like for the next 12 months or something like that, what is the, what is the best approach for, for building the individual services? Because now as they're containerized, dockerized, I can potentially build them with any technology I like, as long as they follow the, the, whatever the platform needs. Is that actually a good idea? How much standardization would you suggest for each of the services internals? So I think what you're asking me is, does it matter how I go about, you know, building the services and containerizing them, mm -hmm. you know, across any of the platform choices? Yes. And so the answer is, you know, no. I mean, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, you know, your development process around, you know, let's say ASP.NET Core or Golang or Node.js or Python, Java, uh, I think um, uh, Spring Boot is sort of the the go to right now for the Java stack JVM in terms of you know containerization, uh, although it's not the only one. Um, so any language that you know is best fit for my team or for the choice of what we're doing. So you know I might choose Python if I'm doing machine learning just because it's better for that, or I might choose Python because my people know Python or my people know .NET, so I go ASP.NET Core. Um, I build my services as I usually would, but what I need to do is target containerizing them. Mm -hmm. So that means I'm building a Docker file describing the dependencies of the service. That means I'm, you know, building Docker images and and running those maybe even locally in development to verify that everything's running containerized nicely. And that means I'm building Docker compose files, which would um, help me with local development to spin up an entire environment in some cases. So I can even build the back end into a, you know, uh, and I'm, I, I do this a lot with with my teams. Like we will build Docker Compose um, implementations that spin up, you know, let's say Kafka, Event Store, um, you know, SQL, or I don't know, uh, RDS um, or Postgres, I should say, because RDS is in Amazon. And we'll run those locally, so it'll actually script out all the data models required to run and everything. So now the developer literally does a git pull and compose up D and they're ready to test their stuff. 
So, you know, all the configurations are pointing directly at, you know, localhost X for each of those data stores and they don't have to know how to set it up and it saves a ton of time. So I can do all of that work. And then when we're ready to push those things out to a platform, let's say we have a centralized dev, you know, instance of the cluster or test or then production, my automated check-in should probably build images, push those to a registry, tag them as development latest. And then when we're ready to push them to test, we tag them with test as an example. And when we're ready to push those to UAT for user acceptance, we tag them as UAT. And when we're ready to push those to production, we tag them with prod. And so we've got now this, this guarantee that the original image built is the thing that traversed all the way through. Um, but, you know, it was irrespective of how I developed those actual services inside the container, because mm -hmm. they can be anything from, you know, ASP.NET Core uh, to Java to Golang to Python and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... Let me ask a few other uh, uh, things that I wrote down as potential questions to ask you about microservice because I'm always interested to get as many people's perspective as possible on those things. Um, just very quickly. Um, I think you answered the first one, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit. Um, synchronous or asynchronous communication? What do you prefer? Asynchronous because of messaging because I'm, I'm typically faced with larger solutions. So I, I guess I'm kind of now brainwashed into thinking that way, regardless of if we, you know, go through a, a, an actual messaging uh, message broker. Mm -hmm. I think you've answered the next one uh, to a large degree as well, but let me ask you anyway. Data sharing between microservices. Is it ever okay can for I, two microservices to access the same database? Can I say hell no? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> <laughs> or do you need to bleep that? No, no, we're, we're, we're European, at least at the moment, so we don't mind. <laughs> okay. Um, That's where the eventual consistency comes in, right? So, yeah, that would be an absolute no. Mm -hmm. Code sharing by means of libraries between services. Ah, now that's an interesting one because there's a, you know, a smell people seem to get from duplicate code. So people hate duplicate code, right? But then, of course, we don't want dependencies between microservices. So we don't want the impact of one piece of code to affect other microservices, right? Because it sort of defeats the purpose of them being isolated and independently deployable and non-dependent on one another. So I think that there are some patterns that I, I like for this. I think if you have something very central to your ecosystem, like all of our services are built with .NET and all of them need to validate tokens at the service boundary. And we all want them to do it the same way. So we're gonna build a component that does that. Fine, you can have that shared component, but that shared component has to be distributed in a NuGet package, for example. And if you're using other languages, maybe you're using NPM, but you have to have packaging with versions so that the each service can independently choose to update to the next version and test that they are not, you know, going to have a regression out of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you at least build components that, again, have an intentional upgrade path, then I think you can say that shared code is sometimes a, a necessary evil for those types of things. But also... For certain things, you might not want to be afraid to duplicate code. 
Because I think um, might have been Sam Newman that coined the the statement that you know there's a far worse evil in you know um, shared code in binary form than there is in duplicating code across your microservices. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's that's important to you know be careful about sharing. It is a smell, but also you know componentization of that with intentional updates has been a thing I've found successful Mm -hmm. that doesn't work when you go cross library so now i have to deal with well what if we also have services that are python and those need to do security you know api token security as well then i would obviously need two libraries right one for my dotnet people and another for my others and that way we could at least have consistency in how to do those things Mm -hmm. okay next question what about the user interface what about the ui What's, what's the UI's relation to each service? Is it part of the service? Does it sit above each service? Does each service have its own UI? Or is there a monolith sitting on top of it? What's the best approach? So there there is a, a purest view of the microservices principles that would state that a service emits its own representation of the UI. But you could argue JSON responses are an example of that. So if you're working with, you know, something simple like a JSON response for APIs to, you know, gather information or get responses, then the UI can decide how to represent that in some other friendly form. So then to the question of does every service have its own UI, I don't think that's realistic. I think it can be that case. And and I think you want to get away from monolith in the sense that it's not likely all your services should be called by one UI. So that's where perhaps the UI can have a little more flexibility in how do we aggregate, you know, how we interact with this data um, at the UI level in terms of which services should we call? And can multiple UIs potentially call uh, the same service? Absolutely. I mean, I I think that's another smell that you just want to watch for because Perhaps theoretically, that should be another view into that data. Um, Because is it really the same service? Is your perspective from a mobile device, here's a good example, even just get away from microservices. When I expose just a general API to a web app, you know, my perspective on that API, that, that content, let's call it user management, is very different in the way I want to return data to a mobile device for efficiency of that UI versus the interface that I would use for a website that has a fully functional management interface versus a third-party entry point through an API gateway that is uh, third parties building UIs in front of it. So the intention of that integration shapes the, the API and or microservice then. So now what we're talking about is is there only one service in a microservice or can there be multiple services that share still the same data store but expose a different sort of way into the data? And that example I just gave would be an example where those three services are different to target their UI, but they actually still have to talk to the same data because they're all three managing data the same way. They're all three doing you know, user management, right? So until I see the need for and eventually consistent projection for performance reasons, I might consider those three services a microservice kind of single deployment that shares a schema. 
And mm -hmm. so there is no rule that a microservice is always one service instance, right? Because well, imagine CQRS, a read and a write path. Well, well, I do have to ask now, isn't that the thing that you said you, um, that you said hell no to? I mean, having three services accessing the same data Three microservices. Okay? Mm -hmm. okay, so is it microservice can have three service okay. instances? Okay, but a microservice that means these three all go together. They deploy together. Mm -hmm. They version together. Okay, they are considered the same. Okay, so you, now you have a granularity. Make, excuse me, just to to be clear on, on on my understanding here. So your granularity would be that a microservice is the deployment unit, and the service is what's inside the deployment unit. Is that correct. Right? Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, with large organizations that have the idea of scale in mind with every step of the way, they may out of the gate always say everything's got to be a projection, never share, which means those would break up into their own independently deployable microservices with eventual consistency. But imagine a smaller company that, you know, is just trying to achieve a microservice goal, but maybe they don't have, you know, millions of users. Maybe they have... 500 users, maybe scale is not always a, a concern about these things, but they still want to keep that different perspective on how the API looks to the different devices, mobile, web, and, and partners, third party. So those could be separately deployed services, or they could just be separate controllers in the same service. I mean, again, I, I hate to say it, it depends, but it mm -hmm. does. Um, and these are the things you finesse. What you want to do, though, is have patterns that you follow everywhere. That's another thing is that the whole it depends argument is fine as long as whatever it is you decide, do that everywhere. Have only a few choices and do those choices only everywhere. So one of the questions one might wonder about is um, if you have this complex system of services, microservices working together to achieve a common goal, how do you make sure that things actually work? How do you test for regressions if you have somebody independently deploy a new version of a microservice? How do you make sure everything is still okay? Okay, so, and this is a problem not only with microservices, but I think with any integration of services into a greater system. The people that build the service can document the service and every single method in that service to a level of detail that that helps people understand what's happening inside the method. But that doesn't cover all integration tests, unfortunately. Because until you think about the intent of the caller or the potential for a use case touching this service, but then calling this other one and this other one and this other one in the system, until you look at the integration test, you actually don't know if something could be wrong with the way you're thinking about this individual method. It still has to integrate. And so the way that my view and, and probably others on, on testing with microservices is that the test should be written by the people consuming it. And so that way, if you have three or four UI that potentially might use the same service and they want you to test it in the context of their perspective, they provide the tests they provide the list of tests that you must execute. And then you as a developer of the service can say, okay, these are the tests I need to cover when I make a change so that I know everything still works across everything. And so until someone tells me how you might use my service, 
then my tests are just unit tests and they're not integration tests and they may absolutely not work. So microservices success de depends on tests being written by the consumers. Mm -hmm. So if you have those uh, consumer written uh, tests, um, do you actually uh, deploy them by means of more containers? That the, uh, it could be absolutely i mean people frequently use containers for spinning up test cases mm -hmm. um who writes the test ultimately could be a collaboration but the people who are going to use the service i'm a ui i'm gonna have a page i'm gonna click a button i'm gonna change your password i expect it to do this i expect it to then when i go to this page show me the end result or i get a link in an email and then i click it and i go here um these Test workflows are important. Somebody has to define, I'm going to use it this way. Mm -hmm. And and I run into this a lot, you know, just, you know, when you work with large organizations that have lots of services and lots of teams, they don't always know how the teams are going to use their services. And so then we're constantly in this back and forth of, oh, but this didn't work and that didn't work. And, and that's okay. That's another way to solve the problem, right? Find out as you go. But had those test cases been written up up front, you can avoid a lot of those problems. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Very good. Anything else I should have asked you? Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, one thing that probably comes out of, you know, this discussion and others like it is it's not trivial, right? There's a lot of things to know here. Um, you know, I've had a, a fair number of experiences myself and, and, and our extended team around many of these platforms. And it's not, it's not easy. I'm just not afraid of it because we've done so much, but I, I have to put myself in the shoes of people just getting started. This sounds like a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the truth is it is a lot of work. So that's why the business value is so important. So I would just leave it with, you know, if you target business value and you understand why you're heading to microservices and why that's going to benefit you, that will help drive your success because then the investment feels less painful. But the other thing I would leave people with is make sure you do take it all the way, you know, get your DevOps in order, get your orchestration platform drills done, you know, do testing for failure be ready for disaster recovery because it, it's actually forcing us to do the things we should probably arguably already be doing, which is those good practices for failure and recovery and, and rolling forward quickly and, and fixing problems quickly and diagnostics into what's going on. Right. So, so yes, it's a lot of work, but it's kind of stuff we should do. So, you know, if you see the business value, just be prepared to invest and get in and do it, but it'll pay off on the other side. Awesome. Michelle, it was a pleasure to talk to you about this whole topic. Um, thank you so much for your time. And I'm looking forward to having you on another episode, maybe in the future. Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation, Stefan. Thanks, Michelle. And bye, listeners. <laughs>